I stood in the shelter, like tears like pouring out of my eyes. Just, I, I can't believe I accepted this job. I can't believe this is what's happening. From Vetex International, this is Blunt Dissection. I'm Dave Nichol. On today's show, I'm joined by Dr. Sarah Pisano. Sarah is a Cornell graduate and leading light in shelter medicine who's brought about enormous positive change to shelters across America. After university, she completed an internship at the Animal Medical Center and was subsequently hired by North Shore Animal League in Port Washington, New York, where her shelter medicine adventure began. In 1998, Sarah was recruited as director of the Humane Society of Broward County in Fort Lauderdale, and in 2005, she was appointed to the director of Miami-Dade Animal Service services in Miami, Florida. During her tenure, she attracted hundreds of thousands of dollars in funding, nearly tripled the adoption rate, and pretty much rewrote the Animal Services County Code. In 2013, she joined Target Zero as program director and was instrumental in creating and developing a new model to transform high euthanasia public shelters. She visited and mentored multiple shelters around the country, resulting in a drop of nearly 50,000 animal euthanasias in just 18 of those shelters alone. In an effort to offer a wider scope of services to help shelters of all sizes. She created Team Shelter USA in 2017, where her goal is for all animal welfare organizations to have access to her life-saving practices. Dr. Pisano is the author of the Best Practice Playbook for Animal Shelters and is a board member of the Companion Animal Advisory Council and the Humane Society of the United States. Now, just before we jump into the episode, a quick word from today's show sponsor, which is the VetX Thrive community. If you're working in practice and clients or colleagues are making you miserable, then I have good news and bad news. The bad news is you're probably at the source of your problems. The good news is that you are in control of changing things and having a great career. You're simply missing some skills and they're not clinical. Enter VetX Thrive. VetX is a race-accredited, non-clinical skills training course where members receive training, toolkits, and mentoring support to develop these skills. Paul, one of the community members, says joining was the best decision of his life and went from being miserable to being energized and happy in his work. Membership is available for a small monthly fee and you can check out more at drdavenickel.com forward slash slash Vetex Thrive. Now back to the show. In a sector of veterinary medicine which can seem bleak, Dr. Pisano's work offers not just a glimmer of hope, but a well-lit path to a future where animals that can find homes do find homes. I was engrossed, and I learned so much about the incredible and often unsung work that Sarah and all the heroes in shelter medicine undertake each day. I hope you also enjoy this eye-opening conversation with the inspirational Dr. Sarah Pisano. So welcome to another episode of Blunt Dissection Podcast. We are at the tail end of uh, what has been a very good VMX show. And I'm I'm joined on the on the mic today. Um very, very excited by today's guest. First came across only very recently uh, today's guest. Mutual friend introduced us and said you have to interview this person. And she told me a story. Uh, so first of all, I'll introduce you. So welcome to the podcast, Dr. Sarah Pisano. Thank you for having me. Yes, my name is Dr. Sarah Pisano, and I founded Team Shelter USA that I'll tell you about. It's very cool. So what captured me? So I'm often recommended people to come on the show, and perhaps a start place is you work in shelter medicine, you know, senior facility director, and I've got a lot of questions about so many elements of that role. But as I was being told about your work, 
somebody told me, and, and if this is inaccurate or untrue, please correct or you know set the record straight here, that your office was at the end of the corridor that led to the room where euthanasias were performed. And so what I heard was that, you know, and, and you're a busy person, there's a lot of stuff to do, but, but somebody would be walking a, an animal to be euthanized. And then what this person heard was just somebody's voice coming out of the office going, wait, 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 wait. And you'd go out and love on the animal, the pet, the dog, as it was being taken to the euthanasia room and saying, there, there, you know, and you'd say something kind and just give them a cuddle and show them some love. Did that happen? What did you say? And because my my brain exploded when I heard that about what emotional reserves does it take? You'll hear about compassion fatigue, burnout, but that's such a moment of compassion for an animal. But you did that every time an animal went past your door. Well, I think as a shelter veterinarian or anybody who works in a shelter, I felt and still feel that every one of those pets are my own. And so when I I dedicated my book to my dog and said, every animal I see, I see her. So that was what you're talking about, the fabulous Dr. Mary Gardner, who's the founder of Lap of Love. And Mary was a volunteer for me at the Humane Society of Broward County before she even went to vet school. She was, as you know, in software, you know, crazy (laughs) story. And she told me years later that whatever that I remember a dog that, you know, that comes into a shelter matted, I mean, inches of mats so that it hurt to even touch them and just horribly filthy and full of fleas and ticks. And I would say, oh, you're so precious. You're going to be, you know, and so Mary would always be like, oh my God, the dog stinks. And so... (laughs) And Dr. Pisano's like, oh, you're so beautiful. And then I was like, but Mary, look, now she's groomed. She's beautiful. Like, you know, she just was a diamond in the rough. That's what stuck with Mary all these years, she tells me. You kind of had a big influence in that moment on Sweet. someone's career. And so, I mean, effectively, you, you may be responsible for, for, for a lap of love. I mean, that's, you know, it's, 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 it's amazing to hear her say these things to me, you know, after all these years. This is entirely why I love doing the podcast, because I sometimes wonder if, if we are aware of the impacts of, you know, as we move into more senior roles within the profession, the impact of role models and just those little moments of, Maybe it's a kind word here or a supportive, you know, right. gesture or, you know, giving somebody a break when nobody else would, you know, right. the technician who wanted to get into this profession so bad when they were a school kid, but nobody would look at the school kid right. and someone gave them their break and now they're like a rock star. Yeah, I believe we don't know 99% of those ripple effects and that's why it's so important Yeah, for all of us, not just in the veterinary profession, but in our everyday lives, right? being kind to, to yes. others around humans and animals. Yes. So take us back then. I was interested to get a sense of, we're going we're gonna to go through, and I think by the end of this conversation, we will have a, a very good understanding of, of you and, and of the amazing work that you do. But just take us back in the mists of time to your formative years. How did you end up inventing medicine? Can you paint the, the picture of how that, that sure. happened? Sure, yes. So someone once asked me if I knew my whole life that I wanted to be a veterinarian. 
And I said, no, I didn't decide until I was three years old. And you know, the whole room, (laughs) just like you're laughing, like the whole room laughed and I'm like, but I'm serious. Do you remember three years old? I absolutely, I don't remember, but my parents tell the story and they, Uh they got me a puppy, a Noach, when I was a year old and I was extremely attached to her. And at three years old, I was holding her and I announced to my parents that I was going to be a vegetarian. (laughs) And so they said, they're looking at each other like, she doesn't even know what a vegetarian is. Like, how would she know that word? But I was holding my dog and then they figured out I meant I was going to be a veterinarian. And this is a three-year-old child. So I go through my life and all of my friends say, you know, I want to be a fireman. I want to be a doctor. I want to be a candlestick maker, whatever. And all through high school, I, I never wavered, not once. I went to college. I was in junior year of college. My friends would say, well, I don't know what I'm going to do. I'm like, what are you talking about? You didn't decide when you were three? Like, Diva, I thought that was just normal. Right. I honest did, honestly, what do you mean you're a junior in college and you didn't declare your major yet? <laughs> <laughs> right? So, and let me just say this, and now most of your listeners, I understand, are veterinarians, but for all those kids out there, I was not a straight-A student. So this was absolutely oh, divine intervention. You're for in good company in this room in that case. Get into Cornell Veterinary School was divine intervention, I assure you. Yes. So, okay, maybe we'll come back to that too, because everyone's kind of got their getting into vet school story, which, and there are a lot of students that listen into the podcast as well. And, and you know, and, and students today seem to, you know, there's, there's a lot of stress. Oh, yes. They're kind of stressed yes. out of their brains. So maybe we'll, we'll, d- we'll circle back to that and talk about your journey and, and your trajectory through vet school. But what other influences were there? Because I, I, I decided, I actually don't remember when I decided to be a vet. And I, and I often tell the story, it was like that Wheel of Fortune wheel. And it was just like, you know, I went through all the silly boy things like astronaut, fighter pilot, fireman, whatever. And I think it just eventually it stopped on something my parents found palatable and not, not ridiculous. <laughs> You know, like right. juggler, like you want to be a drummer, so like dr- yeah, yeah, exactly. Right. I'm going to be a clown. I'm going to be like, right. you know, and they're like veterinary, yeah, veterinary surgeon. Bam, there. That's we'll do respectable. That. That's respectable. We'll have that. So what? Uh, it was usually supportive things yes. that go on to that rather than it being. A, yes. Nothing. Nothing feels like it's a straight shot to me. Like it's always the illusion we're sold between. I was here and yeah. I ended up in success here, and it's it was like A and B join up in a straight line, and, right. and they never do. So how is it for you? Mine was uh, just anointed. Mine was a straight shot all the way up until the first time I applied to vet school and didn't get in. <laughs> so my family, you know, I'm the golden child. I'm the youngest. I, my entire family is so supportive. And oh, of course, Sarah's going to be a veterinarian. I mean, there was never any question. And then I remember in college, a professor saying to me, you know, everybody wants to get in vet school and you just don't have the grades. So you should change your major decide to do something else. And I was like, thank you so much. But in the back of my mind, I'm like, but I'm going to be a veterinarian. (laughs) So when I didn't get in the first time, I wasn't defeated because I knew a lot of people didn't get in the first time. But I will tell you this story. I went to Cornell, which was my dream school that first year after I didn't get in to see how I could improve my application. And the admissions counselor said, you're just not Cornell material. You're not going to cut it. So you might as well not even apply. And again, I said, thank you so much, but I'm going to get into vet school. And 
And because I knew that she passed my application to the next level, so guess what? It wasn't her decision anyway. Mm. And she said, well, you should get graduate level experience to prove yourself. So I went and got a master's at Columbia University. And then I got in the next year. So, yeah. so and your master's was in what? Physiology. Oh, yeah. My, my dad is a, you know, he's a physiologist. Just to get into vet school. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's my, that was my yes. dad's, my dad's degree and then his PhD in pharmacology. Oh, is that right? So, yes. So physiology was the one subject yes. I actually was reasonably good at in the in the, the earlier years of vet school. It blows my brains that you have to go and do a master's to prove yourself to get into a highly academic thing. On top of, I'm imagining your undergrad degree, right? So, so you, you I, I majored your... in zoology and I minored in chemistry and... Right anthropology okay so you have those subjects tucked away under your belt already right to go to a vet school i'm so surprised they didn't say hey you don't have you know the graduate level experience what i expected you were going to say was so go away and spend some time on some farms and working with some horses and you know the things you might expect a veterinarian to do to prove themselves worthy of being on a course but they sent you away to do more academic Studies. Right, they were worried Does, about me, my academic potential. Right. Yeah. Does that speak to some of the challenges we've got in the profession today where it's so focused on academia and yet all these kids are coming out and breaking yeah. because they don't have the social skills? Maybe for others, maybe that might be true. But I think in my case, I wasn't a straight A student, so it was a valid concern for them. Yep. And I'm just thankful I got in, like I said. And I don't know if you know about Cornell undergrad, but it is cut throat Mm -hmm. competitive i mean lots of issues with anxiety and suicide in undergrads or it used to be right so the dean knew that and you know a portion of the students came from undergrad cornell but all of us had fought very hard and worked very hard and were very competitive yeah and so day one dean smith was our dean and he said you have worked yourselves to the bone but guess what? You're here and every one of you is going to graduate. So there's no reason to compete. Yeah. There's no reason to be nervous. All of you, I get chills thinking about this. All of you are going to become doctors. You're all going to leave here with a DVM. Mm. And it just about Florida, you know, it was just so beautiful to hear. And we were so grateful to him. Yeah. He's such a great leader. Right, right. That was just a compassionate thing to say. Yes. To just set your mindset and give right, you some because we're all on this ease. treadmill going way too fast and getting spit off and to hear that was like wow mm. ah, we could breathe yeah so when you get to vet school you know obviously with your career in, in shelter medicine now was that also a plan from early on in the career never okay never so, I, so what were the the waypoints yeah. along the way that you know again give us some detail of your yeah. career going through vet school like how did you form and come to be yeah so it, it's interesting because it starts a few years before vet school so the other thing they they said well besides the graduate degree i thought well if i'm going to be in new york city i need to work at the largest animal hospital in the country I'll not only get experience, but I'll make good connections. And so I went to the Animal Medical Center in New York and I said, I want a job as a clinic assistant and I was hired and I was there for three years and that the AMC is just in my blood. So I thought I was going to specialize 
probably in surgery, maybe internal medicine, and I would never leave the AMC. Through vet school, I went back and worked at the AMC. I went back as an intern. So it was like, it was, it was like, okay, that, you know, now this whole plan is going to unfold. And something really interesting happened. When people can't afford to pay their bills, they would leave their pets and not come back for them. And they were called drop-offs. And from that moment then, there was, if you will, this underground system to avoid sending those animals to the dreaded animal control in New York City, right? So I got like, you know, I got a part of that because... We didn't. They had a high youth euthanasia rate at the time. They're now phenomenal, which I want to come back to. But at the time, they were just drowning in, in animals and euthanizing for space. So from there, I was approached by a resident who had graduated from the AMC program who was over North Shore Animal League on Long Island. If you don't know anything about North Shore Animal League, it is certainly not the norm. Okay. It is, uh, at the time, probably a $45, $50 million budget for the animal shelter. It was called a limited admission shelter, yet took in almost 40,000 animals a year. Wow. (laughs) And if an animal was left at that shelter, and I don't care if it was a tiger cat in a cardboard box in the parking lot, I don't care if it had a brain tumor, liver cancer, a broken leg, it doesn't matter. Everything was treated and everything was saved, except for, I'll tell you about that later, except for pit bulls at the time. And I'm not sure what they're doing now, but pit bulls went to animal control, unfortunately, which is a whole nother topic we can talk about for the next two days. But in any event, full service hospital, specialist in internal medicine and surgery, 24-hour care, award for just parvovirus, award for distemper, award for ringworm and emergency ward. And I thought, this animal welfare thing is great. Oh my gosh. You didn't have to deal with clients. No. Is, except, that, is that why it was well, great? Or? No, no, it was great because, oh my gosh, this animal welfare thing is awesome. Like, a, you know, a dog gets left in the parking lot with a broken leg and we spend $3,000 on surgery, no big deal. And then yep. we put him in adoptions and he gets adopted. Here's the thing at North Shore at the time, Anybody you adopted with a chronic medical condition was treated for free in our hospital for life. Yep. And so we did see those clients, but it was great because I thought, oh my gosh, like we can save everything. But Dave, here's what happened. When you're the vet and the owner and making those end of life decisions, but you're not the only one, you have other veterinarians, you have technicians, you have the kennel people, you have the pickle boy, you have everybody with an opinion about what you should or shouldn't do, it burned me out. And I didn't agree with some things that were happening in North Shore. It was a beautiful, amazing place. But at the time, way back in the 90s, I'm just speaking about my experience. And it just burned me out after two years. So there was, rather than just a pet owner, this is a, a complex vcpr right like everybody's got skin in this relationship game because they all feel invested yes so heavily right so difficult and it's a difficult position for veterinarians to be in you know 
Which sounds crazy because it sounds like dreamy, but it does sound like dreamy. Yeah. So you've, you've so I've got so many questions about about this North Shore facility. So, but I'm gonna I'm gonna ask. I think probably the most important one first. So you've got this situation where you've got a case flow of, and, and I'm guessing every veterinarian around knew about it. So if the animal couldn't be fixed, then they would say, "Hey, go to North Shore." So you've got the perfect referral system for. Not no hope cases, but yeah. but no money cases. But you've got a system that can cope with that. Not really, because at the time, safety net and shelters wasn't a thing. Right. So this was a surrender. So it wasn't helping the client. You, the animal would get surrendered and then right, go to right, a different right, home. Right. So it wasn't that we were helping people keep their pets. Sure. Yeah. So they would drop the animals off. They would be told, listen, you're going to lose your pet, but... So one way or another, people would know this was an option. Yeah, animals would show up. You would you would then not have to have the whole communication conversation with clients because there would be no client right. beyond the point of surrender. Right. Okay, here's the plan. Here's what we're going to do. My awareness of I guess ethics and welfare. I was speaking in the Wasava track with Sheila Robertson on on welfare and ethics this by the show. And I was reading through the Wasawa Ethics Guidelines and it was really what became clear in my mind was a distinction I hadn't made between what ethics were and what morals were and ethics being sort of a more group level, group think thing and morals being more of an individualistic thing and the conflicts that kind of arise between the two. So that's just got my brain chugging over that. Now when you say like with all these people with emotional investment and probably you know, technical and time investment in these animals, what sort of conflicts were arising and how would you work through those conflicts? Are there and, any examples? And when I look back and for me as a veterinarian, it became a situation that I didn't want to continue in. But for some veterinarians, maybe it is a good fit. It was, I remember one of the things that changed my mind about staying there was a very poor doer kitten that for many, 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 many weeks we were trying to save and it was clear we weren't going to save this kitten and it was clear that the kitten was going to die and I said we need to put the kitten to sleep and that decision was challenged. Mm. And so I thought, gosh, I'd rather have an owner. I'd rather have an owner making that decision, you know, instead of me making that decision because this is a whole cultural community that around that animal which is a beautiful thing but sometimes it's not resolved and sometimes and it does cause conflict did you have framework and this happens in shelters all over all over the world i'm sure i think you might probably have the answer to that in this book that sat next to me did you i do have all the answers by the way right so i'm excited to talk to you about that so i want to ask that's why i want to ask all the questions (laughs) on behalf of our colleagues because it sounds like perhaps what would have helped there would have been frameworks for decision making or, you know, when X is true, Y becomes the option. Yeah, um, right. And have a system in place to right. deal with the conflict resolution and yes. those decisions that are so incredibly difficult, you know. Uh-huh. And I appreciate everybody's compassion. But so what was very, this was a major turning point for me to leave. i Honestly, looked for a job in Florida because I hate the cold weather. So that was in New York. And that was really my motivation for looking in Florida. Where, and where, I, where was home? Where did you grow up? In upstate New York, upstate New all York. over New York. Yeah, yeah Monticello, New York. So I grew up a little bit in Vermont. I was born in Manhattan. Up the, fed up the cold winters and uh, warm summer, hot uh, summers. Every year. 
yeah. just, yeah. So I, at that point, when I decided to leave North Shore, I was like, this is my opportunity to make a break, right? I yeah. had to pay back some New York student loan or scholarships at the time. So it was the perfect time. So roundabout way, I ended up at an open admission shelter, private, in Fort Lauderdale, and that's where I met the fabulous Dr. Mary Gardner. When I started there, this was an open admission shelter, and they told me when I interviewed that they only euthanized for health and temperament. But Dave, remember that what that means to me? You are agonal. You stop breathing. Maybe you have a heartbeat, right? This is what medical mm-hmm. means to me. Yep. Or behavioral. You killed three people. And now we're going to put you to sleep because you're a big dog, right? Yep. yep. And that wasn't the case. And so they euthanized for space or for color or for a sneezing, a URI. What was what, for color? You mean uh, a calico Maybe there cat? were too many black kittens because many? black is the, the recessive trait and there's more black kittens. And you can't have your, this was the... The belief. The belief. You can't have all these black kittens. There's too many black kittens in the adoption area. But I'm going to tell you at the time that was in the 90s, that's what every shelter was doing, Dave. At rate, we were doing the best we could, feeling victimized in this system. But my problem was they told me health and temperament, and it meant a totally different thing to me. And that first week, I was brought to my knees. I was absolutely brought to my knees. You can't imagine the things we saved. Or at North Shore, we would say, "Um, dear potential adopter, this boxer has disseminated mast cell cancer, six months to live, but no worries. We're going to treat him for you for free till the end of his life. Won't you please adopt him? And guess what? People swarmed to North Shore and said, who needs me the most? Who is the sickest? Who has the shortest period of time, right? Yep. So I know the potential in a community, yes. right? But I don't have that gap of resources yes. to get to get there, right? So euthanizing a cat because it sneezed, and by the way, we saw every sequela to every disease. Whoever saw arthropathy in a URI, right? That happened because everybody was getting saved. Whoever saw... saw you know, the heart issues, sequela to parvovirus. That's not normal because at the time, so many of them were euthanized. Yes. So it was just a shock to my system to, to see animals euthanized, forget healthy, that was bad enough, but even these minor medical issues. You've gone from, I, I just want to circle back to, you know, so the, the burnout was induced at North Shore by the relationship management, by the sounds of it. And I don't want to put words in your mouth, but the almost the second guess, the constant moral ethical headbutting that was going on. Is that is that correct? That was just wearing you down. Yes, I would say everybody had the best of intentions, right? You know, but for me, it just wasn't the right environment. Okay, to then move into this, you know, this this is my moment. I'm going to get out of here. To it sounds like a punch in the guts to suddenly go to wait. What we're right. Right, I don't, I don't so understand. this is the turning point. Okay. So I stood in the shelter, like tears like pouring out of my eyes. Just, I, I can't believe I accepted this job. I can't believe this is what's happening. 
And then I realized that was normal. I realized that was the reality of what was happening in every open admission shelter to a much greater and more drastic extent than the shelter that I had just started with. And that's when I decided, wait a minute, North Shore's not the real world. They're just blessed to have all this money to support the work, but they are the only ones in the country at the time like them. And if I'm going to truly make a difference for the most animals, this is where I need to be. I need to be where the most animals are at risk so I can change what's happening. And that was a major turning point for me. You sound like you used the word victimized earlier in the way that, you know, the veterinarians are feeling. That's interesting to me. That's an interesting word. That sort of victim, the mindset of the victim. Had you had that, you might have taken a different pathway. But but what it sounds like you've done is something different. Well, when I use the word victim, what I meant to refer to is as shelters, we have felt victim. Oh, we have no control over all the animals coming in and all of that. So shelters typically, and the ones I work with now, typically feel that way. And we need to get out of that victim mentality. And that's what I want to talk to you about today, for sure. Okay, let's go there. And uh, maybe if I would set the scene on my understanding, just and that will help to check in with you. And so the mindset of the victim, the mentality of, of being victimized, is that you're powerless, everything's happening to you, everything's outside of your control, Exactly. you blame others, and so your actions are all almost self-defeating, negative thoughts, exactly. powerless, hopeless, those things. This is welcome to animal the animal welfare industry up until, you know, the tide started changing probably 10 or 15 years ago, thankfully. So. Okay, I'll let you pick up the ball from there then and say, so that's where things were. It's, Talk us through the, the transformation that's so, happened over the last yes. decade and a half. So there's another part of the story that's really important is when I left that open admission private shelter, well, something happened during that time. Animal Planet approached me and said, listen, we're filming this story in Miami. Um, we're doing Miami Animal Cops and we're not able to follow up on animals. We're not able to, you know, there's all, we need happy endings. Like we need, and somebody said, well, if you want something positive, go see Dr. Pisano. So they came to me and said, listen, can we bring you animals from Miami? And then we'll finish this part of the story here. And I said, sure. So they would tell me that, you know, they would tell me things that were happening at the time. And I mean, that was back in, you know, the early 2000s. And I thought, holy cow, that's not good. So ultimately left that private nonprofit open admission shelter and opened the newspaper and saw that the Miami shelter, the the county manager in Miami-Dade County was looking for a director because they just had an evaluation by the Humane Society of the United States. And one of the recommendations was to get an experienced director. And he was quoted as saying, I want this place overhauled. And I was like, whoa, that's the job for me (laughs) because I'm about systems change. And I've never been content to drown in symptoms and feel victim. So we need to see why that's happening and let's fix it. 
So I thought the county manager wants this changed. Let me apply for the job. So I applied. There were 100 applicants. I knew I was going to get this job. From the moment I looked in the newspaper, I, God spoke to me and said, this is where I'm sending you. So I went for the interview. I was in the top 10. I knew I was going to get this job. They called me and said, we're sorry, we're not hiring you. You didn't make it to the top three. I was like, that's okay, because I know I'm going to get this job. Like, I just knew, Dave. So my friends were trying to hire me to manage their hospital. And I said, no, I just know I'm going to get this job. And six weeks later, I get a phone call. Hello, Dr. Pisano. The county manager would like to speak with you. I'm like, of course he does. (laughs) Yes, of course he does. That's because one of the applicants they found out was in prison somewhere. Another applicant, right? So all the applicants fell away and I got the job. That's incredible. I walked in to this HSUS report, 250 pages, 273 recommendations. And I read the report. I'm at the shelter a couple of weeks and I say to the county manager, That incredibly unflattering, horrible report that you just got was actually a compliment to what's happening. It's thousands of animals missing, employees stealing animals. And so thankfully, and I want to keep interjection, interjecting, it is a new day. This is the old, the old, right? Right. This is, this happened 20 years ago, 15 years ago. So it's amazing what I'm going to tell you, but. I, that first year, had three bomb threats. Um, We know that it was employees just trying to scare me to get me to quit. We had protests. I had a horrible shelter with the the sewage backing up in adoptions. I had all kinds of employees sabotaging everything I was doing. I, I would install cameras so they could take pictures of animals on intake. They would take a scissors and cut the cords. At the time, this is before wireless. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> right, right. I had to be escorted to my car at night. I was physically threatened. I could go on and on, but you get the picture. Now, what I'm missing, the little bit of the puzzle I'm missing is, why Why did I take the job? <laughs> no, no, I, no the, I understand why you take the job. Here is a massive problem to solve in an area you're passionate, you're driven. You know, you're calling, if you will. That bit I understand clearly. What I'm not so clear on is, so the report is full of all these bad things that are happening. It's painted this awful picture of this irresistible problem to you. You know, you're not seeing a problem here. You're just saying, oh, this is, the, this is what I was born to do. The people who were sabotaging your efforts, why were they so against? Was it, a, was it is this about... I didn't want to change or was this because surely and my confusion here is you were doing things that were going to improve the lives of the animals that were coming into the shelter. So there's several factors there. One is they were never held accountable, so they didn't really have to work hard. And if they euthanized the animals, then there weren't they would have less animals to take care of. They were stealing, there was teams of employees stealing animals. So I was hurting their bottom line. Oh, they were um, stealing them to them? They were stealing animals from the shelter them? to sell them. Okay. And so I was hurting their bottom line. But mostly that, yeah, they just didn't want anybody to tell them what to do. And this is how that operation functioned for a long time. How many employees? 
124 employees, 37,000 animals a year. Okay. And so that first year was no joke. And I would go into the kennels and the dogs were all in the backs of the kennels shaking and shivering. And I thought, gosh, this is, it's just a sad environment for them. It's so hard for them. This is, this is how it is, right? In shelters, because that shelter was built in the 60s. There was no sound abatement. There was certainly no enrichment. Volunteers had been kicked out before I got there. I thought, oh, that's very sad. And then I started terminating people, which I'm very much in favor of when people aren't doing their job. And for those of you out there that are that may be in public shelters or organizations that say you can't fire public employees, yes, you can. I had five unions against me, working very hard against me to sabotage everything I was doing. And it is possible if you document everything, you have standard operating procedures, your key is good middle management, all of those things in place, management 101. I was going to, I was going to actually ask you on that, not to, I don't want to take you away from the story thread, but do you have criteria for performance criteria for when when is the right time to fire somebody? Yes. When does somebody move from being, right. look, you've just not had good guidance or right. leadership to you're actually, you, you shouldn't be on this right. team. And that is, Management 101 is a passion of mine, but I want to just tell you about those dogs first. Sure. Because the first year, I turned over 75% of the staff, Dave. After maybe five or six months, I was doing rounds, I was walking through the kennels, and guess what? Every dog ran to the front of the cage. Another another moment, another, it made me cry because I thought, oh my God, all this time we're thinking we don't have any control over this. We're the victim, right? But this was because employees were slamming the cages and throwing the balls down and, right? And as I started t- the tipping point of good employees, I saw it in the animals. And that was just a moment that I will never forget. And I tell that story as often as possible. I just told it last week to a shelter that has really good housing and sound abatement. And they're telling me, oh, the dogs are stressed and this is how, no, it's not. Your dogs are barking and jumping and spinning because there's mental breakdown. There's stress, fear, anxiety, frustration. So everything, the way our animals feel This is, I am fear-free is throughout the book. I'm a huge fear-free shelter and fear-free advocate. I gave the first webinar for fear-free. So every single thing we do around animals matters. And it can make or break their experience. It can give them anxiety or it can make them comfortable and prevent anxiety from ever happening in them. So I am... A, I am so passionate about Management 101. So here's the thing. 124 employees at a $10 million budget the year I left. I interviewed every single person, Dave. I was director. I didn't have to do that. I interviewed the janitor, the kennel, the assistant director. I don't care what position it was because I'm going to sit in that interview and I'm going to look you in the eye and I'm going to say, here's how we work here. This is the culture, and we would so love for you to be an amazing employee, and you have great benefits coming here, but I promise you, 
that if you get out of line, you're going to be disciplined. And if you get out of line again, you're going to be disciplined. And if you get out of line again, you're going to be fired. So make no mistake. I don't want that to happen. If you're going to join me and us, you need to be serious about doing a good job. And when you give your staff the tools, the support, you provide the training and the written standard operating procedures, there's no ambiguity. It's consistent. You are consistent in the way you discipline employee A, B, C, D, E, because that is poison to a team, right? If you are not, nothing kills a team more than favoritism. And you give them the training, you have the documentation, but now your secret is middle managers. Mm. If you don't have good middle managers following up and documenting, you know, all of those things, then you're not going to be able to work plan people out. What skills did you look for within your management team when you were hiring them? Oh boy, that's a good question. So I had, so police at the time had run the shelter before I took over as director. And so the whole entire management team left which was such a blessing because I got to pick and choose, right? right? So I had those same conversations with them. And my message was, I want an empowered team committed to this shelter. So that means you and everybody else below you. I need good communicators. I need people who are, quite frankly, especially at that time, not afraid of conflict. Because most people... Don't, don't want to deal with it, don't know how to do it. They feel uncomfortable. And I'm the opposite. I'm running into that fire and we're going to take care of this and fix it, right? Okay. So, so let's, let's, let's pause there for a second because I think you're, you're absolutely on, on the money there. We are in an industry that certainly bruises easily and, and seems, you know, stressed. You have umpteen conversations over and over and over where somebody's given feedback and then they freak out, they go defensive. And partly I think that is they're not used to receiving it, but partly I think it's probably given clumsily, even if well-intentioned. Yes, I agree. So conflict, where are the big sources of conflict with people? We're going to come on to shelters more People are always a fascination. It's a huge issue in in shelters that I work with, every shelter. And and practices all around the world. So what are the flashpoints? What are the common causes of conflict? And can you think of a time or maybe, you know, without throwing anybody under a bus or identifying anybody, think of a time that highlights your approach to conflict management. And you sound like you run toward the sound of gunfire in this regard. So (laughs) (laughs) how... That is true, I would say. So talk me through... (laughs) Your process for yeah. how you might handle conflict because because like so many people are afraid of that. Yeah. And also maybe what happens when you do versus when you don't? There's three right. parts to that question. So <laughs> I just feel like management 101 is very, it's very clear is here. Now I'm going to, with my management team and my staff, we're going to work on these SOPs together because we're going to make sure, because I'm director, I sit a lot at my desk. I want to know what the kennel staff thinks because I'm not the one cleaning the kennels. So they would come up with really great ideas. So now we have these standard operating procedures in writing. Okay. Now we need to make sure that everybody is educated about the standard operating procedures and trained to do their jobs and knows here's my protocol. But if something happens outside of that or I need a question, now I take elevate it to my supervisor. So 
With respect to management and how a supervisor handles things, number one, you make sure all of those things are in place and you empower employees. I think the worst situations that I've seen are when the manager is so strict, There is, it's just all about getting people in trouble. People don't respond to that. You know what they do? Good people quit and then you're left with some not so good employees. So empower and support them and tell them, more times than you can even, you know, think you need to, that they're doing a great job. Recognize them. Recognition, I mean, Harvard Business Review will tell you, recognition is more powerful than money, right? 100%. And so we don't do enough of that. Like, oh my gosh, I noticed that, you know, this happened. Thank you so much. You can't do that enough. But what I see happen in the organizations that are so dysfunctional is... That system is not in place. And if it is in place, it's not always consistently being used. So onboarding new staff is a challenge. And then you have the dreaded inconsistencies and obvious favoritism. And some of that might be maybe there is a middle manager that wasn't supported by a director And when they took these issues to them, nothing ever happened. So they stopped, you know, writing people up. So it's this whole system that needs to work together at every single level. And very clear that, listen, and I say this with great respect, employees, animals, and children need to know what the rules are, right? (laughs) As do we, right? It's true. I need to know what's expected of me. Right. You can't discipline a dog for going to the bathroom in the house when you never told them, you never taught him to go outside, right? So it's no different with employees. It's, they have to know what's expected that I'm not getting like a shot collar every time they turn around. So that middle management, boy, if I had anything to do differently when I was director, it would have been, I would have changed over middle management much quicker. I learned the hard way. Yeah. How important is a a theme that's maybe coming around here as we've talked about you know, the pet's behavior improving because their psychological well-being was improving. You know, almost the psychological safety of culture within your team as well. That sounds like that's something that has been an important part of the work that you're doing. How, I mean, would, firstly, yes. would you agree with that 100%. As, a, as a sentence? Yeah. When people make, you know, when people, you know, to err is human, but when people mess up, how would you maintain a psychologically safe environment so that you could continue to give that feedback and maintain a relationship. Right. So it it's that positive feedback when catch them doing something right. So when you get called to the office, it's not like, oh, I'm in trouble, right? Maybe you're getting called because you got an award. You know, we don't do <laughs> we don't do that enough, I think. It's the relationship of we are a team. And just like my dean said, day one of vet school. You are here and you are all going to graduate DVMs. I want to say to my team, we hired you because we know you are going to be a rock star and we are going to, you are part of our team and this is what we want. Now, mind you, if that doesn't happen, there's the door. Like we're going to work, but we want you to be a good team member. But that will be your choice. That'll be your choice. Right, right. And boy, do I see this as the, yeah the major issue. And then this all is interrelated. So compassion fatigue is, I described it from early on with me, but compassion fatigue is 
probably much higher in shelters, especially when they're euthanizing for space. And again, combine it with uh, we're victims, right? So we have no control over this. So for my entire career up until 2013, I felt the same way. And that is, I mean, it, it creates stress in your body with all other kinds of diseases. And so Fear Free for Pets is Fear Free for People. Make no mistake, one is they are one in the same. And when we introduce these best practices and fear-free practices to shelters and they transform, I can't tell you how many people have called us crying saying, thank you. I was going to quit. I couldn't come to work anymore. I couldn't do this anymore. I couldn't euthanize one more animal. And now I come to work. Can't wait for the day to begin because we know we're going to save everybody who needs help or help them in some way. And it has been a transformation that has been incredibly humbling for me. This is really uplifting to hear. Uh, you know, it's a, it's a sector I've not spent an enormous amount of time involved with. You mentioned there, you know, you had a, a point, a moment where you were just like, this was the first X years of my career. W was it a pivotal moment or was it a sequence of small steps that brought you to change trajectory? It was a pivotal moment. So... To wrap up Miami, it just it just became hard to work against a system that wasn't going to change, and there was a whole lot involved in the decision of why I decided to leave, but I feel blessed to have been able to design the new animal shelter. My amazing boss took my position not really willingly, but he took my position. They doubled his budget because of a, a pets trust movement in Miami. So he got a 70,000 square foot brand new shelter with a double budget. And Miami, I am so happy to say, is not euthanizing for space and has so many amazing programs. So to know that transformation, you know, people have told me that it wouldn't have happened without my work, right. creating the right foundation and building up to what happened. But if you're ever in Miami, please, it's the, it's um, the most beautiful shelter. I was at the ribbon cutting. It was so incredibly exciting. So I left there just knowing that I needed to do something bigger because we were still at that time drowning in symptoms, yep. just drowning. And, and when, when you say you were drowning in symptoms, do you mean you individually or your professional colleagues, anyone in all shelters? shelters? We're drowning in symptoms. We're yep. taking too many animals into the shelter that don't need to be there. We exceed our capacity of care, yes. which means we end up with compassion fatigue and a lot of animals end up euthanized and or suffering from infectious disease. Okay, here's a question that pops into my head there that maybe you have a very clear answer on that I think would be incredibly cool if you did. Is there a sense of what is our ceiling for compassion of care? What are the thresholds there that you're seeing? Because the case volume that you I see have, in shelters Dave, I told you I have all the answers. I do. And I have those answers. Would those answers be in the best <laughs> they, practice playbook for animal shelters? Coincidentally, <laughs> they are available on Amazon. So I will, but I'm going to tell you, this is how it happened because I am, I'm just so grateful and blessed and humbled by what happened then next. I left Miami and I was approached 
by Rick Ducharme, who had been a co-founder of a brand new organization at the time, a, a program of his called Target Zero. And it sounds like a made-for-TV movie, but this really rich guy somewhere who shall be anonymous decided he wanted to end the euthanasia of dogs and cats in the United States. So that was Target Zero. And Rick said, listen, I need you to go do this. And I said, oh, okay, no problem. Like, what the heck would that look like? So he said, I want you to be program director and do assessments and see how you can help shelters and we'll model it after the success in Jacksonville, Florida. And I said, okay. So what we did was we targeted high euthanasia shelters, which were typically public. Yeah. And we went to these shelters and we said, hey, you should think about this approach and that approach. We talked to, and again, right? I don't want, don't talk to me about symptoms. I want to talk, don't tell me about your ordinances, you can't do it. Then let me talk to your commissioners. Let me talk to your mayor. Let me talk to your what, county what do you mean managers. Your ordinances, you can't do it. Is that like building regulations or right, planning? So, or? so every state has state laws pertaining to animal cruelty. Some address straight holds in dogs. Mm -hmm. But then they give the authority of each county in every state the authority to make up their own rules. Okay. So every county has a different ordinance pertaining to animals. Obviously, they have to abide by the state law, but you could be more strict. So I was finding all these ordinances that, A, made no sense, a leash law on cats. I don't know about Great Britain, but in the United States, cats just don't like to walk on leashes. So why would we a have, a, right? I mean, <laughs> things like that. Let's see. Now we have data. We know that 2% of shelter cats are reunited with their families. Congratulations, everybody, on your 98% failure rate. Yet we have a stray hold for cats. Three days, five days, sometimes seven days for a 98% failure rate, right? And we all know what happens to cats when they go in shelters and they're put in these tiny little cubbies under what, you know, the space they need, blah, blah, blah. So we started doing these assessments and I mean, out of the gate, it was incredibly successful. Waco, Texas was one of the first. They never saved. And mind you, for people who don't know about animal shelters, we arbitrarily use this benchmark of 90% save rate, meaning, but the real definition is we're only euthanizing medical beyond hope or large dangerous dogs, yeah. right? Yeah. So it, when I say 90%, I'm using it in that context. You might be at 70%, but doing that, right? So depends on the part of the country you're in. Yeah. So, because geographically, we're doing better in certain parts than others. Waco, Texas has a poverty rate of 30%. The national average is 12.4%. They have never saved more than 36% of the animals. They said, oh, thanks so much, but we're so poor. You probably can't help us. But the county, the city manager and mayor didn't have a plan B. And so they decided to listen. They thought, now I know, they tell us the story, right? They thought we were crazy, but they're like, well, we don't have a plan B. So we'll go with these people and then, you know, see what happens. Within a year, they were over 90%. And that was 2013. They have not euthanized for space since 2014. Okay. So with the success of what you've done there, certain things become true. If you're not right. euthanizing, the building didn't suddenly get three right. times bigger. Right. So there's a whole system of whole cascades system. that have to happen That's for that exactly right. not to get overwhelmed. 
talk us through that because this is yes. this, you have you've got you've clearly got a very holistic systems based yes. approach there. Can you give us and I, and I know this will all be in the book, but can you give us a sense of in Waco what what did you do? I will, and I but I just want to tell you a couple of more examples so you really understand the magnitude of this. Anderson County, South Carolina, never saved more than fifty percent. Within three months, they were over 90% and now counting years later. That was probably 2015. I was in Montgomery County, Ohio. Same exact story. They had never saved more than 50%. Three months later, they were over 90%. And their first year with us, with me, they were over 90%. I looked at my colleague, Cameron Moore, who does these assessments with me now with the University of Florida, sent me a spreadsheet because I said, Cameron, we went to El Paso and there were 3,500 less euthanasias the first year. We went to Greenville, South Carolina, and there were 3,000 less euthanasia. We went here. She sent me a spreadsheet of just 18 of the 100 plus shelters that we've done so far. And there were 47,000 less euthanasias the very first year. But here's the kicker. That's not even the whole story. I've never been a funder. Wow. This was within their current resources. And I wanted to tell that story first, Dave, because that was another come to Jesus moment, just like the transition at my private open admission shelter. I just, I must have sat there for an hour. So heartbroken for all the animals. And I know... I think of all my colleagues like Dr. Kate Hurley with the Million Cat Challenge and UC Davis. Like we we talk about this all the time that we think we were in mourning for all those animals that we had been doing it wrong all these years. It was incredibly heartbreaking. It was incredibly humbling, but at the same time, so encouraging. And so this is the message that it doesn't have to be that way. And this formula works, whether you're North, South, East, West, United States, high poverty rate, low poverty rate, rural, urban. And this is a function of not taking in all the animals that don't have to be there, but there's really amazing strategic ways to prevent them from coming in. So you see, I say that as the disclaimer, it's a little bit like you're cheating a little bit because the intake is going down the live outcome is going up, so it's easier to hit that 90%. But why would you take animals into a shelter if you didn't have to? That's my question. Yeah. Why? And for so long, Dave, we've had this intake bias that the only way that we can help animals in need is take them into the shelter. And it's not true, nor, and this is how I get the attention of the municipal leaders, nor is it the fiscally responsible thing to do, which is the beauty of this whole system. I get what I want. Euthanasia ends, less animal suffering. The municipal leaders get a cost savings. Their constituents are happier, right? So the numbers are staggering. I had the just the honor of talking to Dr. Temple Grandin yesterday about my work. I interviewed for the podcast last month. Oh well. my gosh. Incredible. She, my Hero of, talking, I was thinking of hero of the planet. Yeah. I mean, hero of the planet. She is. And she's encouraging me to publish, which uh, besides the playbook. So I'm going to publish the data because when I speak nationally, it people are hearing me like, this is, this is like brand new. I'm like, no, this is not brand new, you know, but remember, so when I speak about what's happening, remember 
I have always focused on shelters euthanizing for space. There's so many shelters doing it right, doing it better. But I choose, just like I did and why I stayed in sheltering, I want to help the most animals and people. And so I'm always with those shelters euthanizing for space. So I'm going to just give you kind of the highlights. Go ahead. One, public policy. Get Your ordinances have to be in line with, with best practices, and often they're handcuffing shelters' life-saving potential and not having anything to do with public and animal safety. What, what does a bad ordinance versus a better ordinance look like? Um, long stray holds, any stray holds for cats, incredibly high reclaim fees. I was at a shelter in Georgia. If you came to reclaim your dog right from the get-go, you get a $500 citation. How many reclaims do you think they did? Right. So stuff like that. I mean, so I've seen all kinds of crazy things. you can't take things. them for a week or you, right. yes, you that's have to a pay right. fine. All kinds of crazy things. So ordinances. Second is educating your municipal leaders about what best practice animal control and sheltering looks like, but I don't even call it best practices with them. I call it fiscally responsible animal control and sheltering because I speak their language now, yep. right? I talk about life-saving last because I speak, I get, I step into their microcosm. The second part of it, what they think is we have to take all the animals in because that's how we help animals. It's in no state law. It's in, I've seen it in two ordinances. So it is not a law. You don't have to. But because of our fear that that person, if we don't take it, they're going to they're gonna surrender. They're going to just dump it somewhere or shoot it in the head. We have this fear. Our fears around the animal welfare system have such a grip on so many people that it has blunted our life-saving and a whole heck of a lot more animals have suffered because of it. We need to release this fear. Thank God, organizations like the ASPCA published a paper in 2015. I'll admit when I'm wrong. I'll admit when I'm humbled. Holy cow, another humbling study that showed 80% of the people didn't want to surrender to shelters. They just needed temporary help and they didn't have access. And here I was, like everybody else, judging those people. I wasn't helping them, but I sure was judging them. And I sure was taking their animals. And then what happened? Now my shelter's over capacity. Yep. Now my animals are sick. Now I'm euthanizing them, not just for space, but because for infectious disease, right? So what would the short term help of look so like? The short term help, and it's happening all over, thank goodness. It's happening in all successful progressive shelters. You can look at Kentucky Humane Society has a huge program. Jacksonville Humane Society has a big program. They're all over. They're common and normal now. It looks like this. If you need to surrender your pet, please call this number. I get you on the phone, right? It's not at the end of your line. I get you on the phone. What's going on, Dave? Oh, I have surgery on my leg. I don't have anybody to walk my dog. I have no other choices. I have to surrender. No, no, no. We're going to we're gonna send a volunteer to walk your dog while you're recovering. What do you need? Short-term medical. My dog has fleas. Uh, okay, we're going to set you up. Uh, spay neuter they keep having babies you know subsidized spay neuter is huge Mm -hmm. Um, maybe it's behavior maybe it's finding pet friendly housing so there's these it's a menu and it's so simple to just say what you need but if you can't keep your pet dave listen 
We're going to have you hold on to them. You hold on to them. Let's work together and let's see how we can get you a direct placement. Right, so you don't have to right. come in here at all. Right. And here I am all these years just judging you. Yeah. Instead of saying like, what can I do to help you? This is a major shift. This is hard for staff, right? Because they're judging you too. Absolutely. Yeah. So 80-20 principles going to apply here just like everywhere, isn't it? It's going to be like a short list of common things that crop up That's exactly that you can right. proceduralize the way out of it. Yeah. That's exactly right. And remember, I, I read a lot. I probably could have been more effective as a psychologist rather than a veterinarian because a lot of what I do, I read a lot about brain biology. Yeah. <laughs> I read a lot about brain biology because... What I've learned is that our brains, we're fight or flight, and our brains not only remember the negative in front, it amplifies the negative, which makes total sense, right? So if I had 100 amazing experiences today and one bad one, I'm going to remember and complain about the bad one, right? So no different in intake. The intake staff, they're the first ones to tell you, it's not going to work here. Nobody cares about pets. No, wait, right? Because they're thinking, so I say to them, no, nothing is 100%. What if it's 30%? Wouldn't that be awesome? Go look at those three dogs back there shaking, right? Spinning, jumping. Look at those cats with URIs because they're, they have inadequate housing. What about if those three animals were kept out of that? To me, that's a win, right? Right. So when we started with Brevard County Sheriff's Office in Florida, we said to the sheriff, who's an elected official, right? He wants everybody to love him. Try this safety net thing. You know what? If you help 30% without bringing them into the shelter, that's going to be a major, right? We'll pop champagne. So year one, year two, year three, and year four, they've helped 80%. And you just gradually. 80% of the people were helped. And those animals never entered the shelter, Dave. And here I am saying 30%, right? So what? Like, so these things are working bigger and better than I ever dreamed possible. There's two more things that are incredibly important about this safety net and managed emission things that we're talking about. A good Samaritan comes to the shelter. Why? Because they found this pet, they care about them, or maybe it's a litter and they're going to leave them at the shelter. Why? Because by definition, we've lied to them and told them we have all the resources that we need. Mm -hmm. So we get inundated with bottle babies. We have nobody to feed them and they get euthanized. And mind you, I'm making broad sweeping statements. There's a lot of progress in this area, but there's still a lot of shelters that just simply don't. But we have just let the person that has proven to care about these animals walk away from us. And then we try to get help and go, we need volunteers to foster them and we... We can't find them. Why have we never capitalized on those Good Samaritans? When we do that, there's a shelter that started doing this. They went from, I want to say 374, it was in the 300s, fosters a year to 2,000 something a year. Now they have a well-oiled live outcome machine, but still never capitalized on that population. Incredibly important. The last one is a doozy and... For all the private practice veterinarians out there, what I want you all to think about is in 2018, almost a million animals were euthanized in shelters that were healthy enough to be adopted. And those are your potential patients. 
those could have had a client attached to you. So if you're not working very hard to develop partnerships with shelters, this is about your bottom line too. This is in your best interest and there is a huge chasm between private practices and sheltering. Just a huge sad chasm that we're trying to to build a bridge with. When that relationship works well between shelter and private practice, what does it look like? One of the things is we have to respect that a private practice is a business. And so I think both sides, there's issues. One is a lot of rescues or shelter groups get upset if vets don't discount their services. But I said, well, do you go to Walmart and tell them to discount the couch because you, you can't afford it or you, what? I, no, you don't, right? And on the opposite side of it, veterinarians get upset if, for example, shelters have services and don't income qualify people because they feel it's taking business from them. But with veterinarians, it's often the bottom line, the financial aspect of it, and they end up feeling taken advantage of. Yeah. So we have to figure out a way, and I, I'll talk about at the end if we have time, open door veterinary care, which is proving this model, that you can do both, which is really exciting and emerging. But in any event, this is a crucial issue for all veterinarians to know. And I tell you what, I mean, it's, it's, it's a chasm the size of the Grand Canyon still. But that final piece that is actually the most impactful with respect to impacting intake into shelters. And the UK, I think, is doing so much better than this. But here in the United States, Dave, a lot of people, maybe 50% of cat owners let their cats in and out. This is a natural way we live with cats, right? Okay. This is natural. But why then Did we train the public if they see a cat outside that it must be lost and that you should take it to the shelter? Why? (laughs) Now we know 98% of the time that's not happening. Right. And then there's people that say, I don't want the, the cat on my yard or on my porch or whatever. There's typically something attracting them. So instead of those cats, and that's 80% of the population of shelter cats going into the shelter are community cats, friendly or feral, very small percent feral, Yep. right? But there are 12 pounds, they're nice. So would I do this program in my, in 2005? Heck no. Oh my gosh. I don't know. I don't know who feeds them. I'm not going to put them back. But now we know you sterilize them, rabies, vaccinate them and ear tip them, put them, they're already cared for. Why am I going to use my resources when the cat's looking at me like I'm 12 pounds, buddy? I'm in good shape. Like, Trust me, I got this. First of all, I'm stolen from my home. Yeah. I'm taken hostage. I'm in solitary confinement with no options. Yep. Now I'm stressed and sick. And now I'm in the witness protection program. Or worse yet, I get euthanized. Right? It makes no sense. And it really does. And I can't tell you how many... It's Groundhog Day. I sometimes start with this conversation from... This is completely foreign to some shelters and communities still. But thankfully, remember, I'm on the late adopters part of the bell curve. And when you do that, like I talked about Greenville, South Carolina, the first year, the first year, 2,000 less cats went into that shelter, 2,000 less euthanasias, and it was budget neutral. So you just looked at criteria for, hey, this is not a skinny cat. 
this cat right. looks like it's been fed. Exactly. There's no disease stays here. Put the cat back. Listen, or, Dave, you're a you're a veterinarian. You know cats are smarter than people, right? <laughs> like the cats, so we've we have research, less than one percent are too sick or injured to get put back. Right. The cat's like, Do I look like I'm hungry? <laughs> Do I look like I'm starving? You right, know? Right. Like we just we just can't get out of our own way. No. And doing that program is the most impactful thing any shelter can do. It transforms, but get this, not just for cats, not just for dogs, but for people. We end euthanasia immediately. Yep. It's it's astounding. So those are the ways then there's I'll talk about what happens when you get in the shelter, but those are those are the ways that everybody in the community can be involved. So let's change track ever so slightly now. As I say, I think we'll reference the, the book at the end because there's we're touching the surface of really something that is very inspirational for me to hear about this work and totally because it's totally transformational. So So we'll definitely shout out the book and we'll link the book up the best practice playbook for animal shelters in the show notes one of the things that i have seen in my conversations with my colleagues in shelter medicine is that sort of feeling of sort of learned almost learned help hopelessness helplessness you have a completely different vibe (laughs) it's safe (laughs) to say a very positive vibe how do you and I've got a sense of some of the answer from that because you have a different mindset. You have taken ownership of a problem rather than decide that you're a victim and you're disempowered. Built these systems, proven they worked, got all this data. But still you have to do some tough stuff in shelter medicine, even if you're doing this, more so than your average general practitioner, perhaps. I wondered your opinion on euthanasia as an impact to us and I know that Mary and Danny have their own opinions and you know business that only does euthanasias with apple of which sort of blows out the water I think that sort of sense that euthanasia is a really bad thing for our mental health but I wondered on your opinion on is it the kind of euthanasia that that has the impact yes. and also then how do you maintain your own mindset do you have any routines or patterns or you know, things that you do, uh, routines that help you maintain a healthy, I don't want to say positive because I don't want to lead it anywhere, but but a healthy mindset, state of mind that you feel like this is sustainable, that gives you energy. Doing what I do now. Doing what you, you do mean- now, but p- perhaps something that would be pertinent to people who are in yeah. the shoes that you were in, yeah. in the, a previous stage of your career. So that's, I guess that's kind of part two. Part one is euthanasia. Yeah. Tell me about that impact on mental yeah, health. Yeah, the impact is absolutely the condition of the animal. So euthanizing healthy animals or animals that have minor issues or, I mean, even medical issues where they could still have a good quality of life, but you don't have a person attached to them. That is what has brought all of us to our knees in animal welfare that it's not that we have a problem euthanizing those that need to be euthanized, but the problem is when we know that, you know, and I remember walking through my shelters years ago, just looking at, you know, some of these animals and just saying like, 
I can't believe like nobody's here for you. Like I can't believe, you know, it's just so heart, incredibly heartbreaking. And I will tell you in my work since 2013 that this work has been transformative for animals and people, period. And we see it over and over again. And that I think is what motivates me because when I go to the shelters that are still in the hole, it, you know, there's, you you might've heard that expression, you know, I know how to help you out of that hole because I've been there too. Right. And so my message is there is, there is a better way, but we have to release our fears and look at the research, the data, the successful programs. And so it is incredibly inspiring for me to tell these shelters, hey, I know how you feel because that's what happened to me in Miami. Like, oh, I listen, I'm going to introduce you to the vet or the director at this shelter because they felt the same way. And now they're celebrating year two of this amazing life-saving program. And to do that, I feel is just such a blessing But at the same time, Dave, you have to understand what I walk into a lot is incredibly challenging and resistance to this change so that I'm in front of animals who are suffering at the hands of people with the best intentions, right? But they're in inhumane housing. They are not getting the enrichment that they need. They're breaking down mentally and I'm meeting resistance. So I have difficult conversations and one of my colleagues make I mean I guess she makes fun of me she says how come you tell people they suck and they still love you so I must (laughs) so I must have a knack but because I do I feel I understand they feel victimized and I understand they can't see the forest through the trees but I want to help them so I have difficult conversations and yes it's stressful but it's the only way to help them out of the hole because we can't go in there and just help them transfer animals. No, we're going to help you. You know, we do that too, but we want to go in there and help change the system. So you don't, you don't have to be on this roller coaster of a treadmill, you know? And then personally for you, are there any, you know, habits, routines, behaviors that you have inbuilt into yourself to help you maintain that positivity, be resilient, be tenacious? Yeah, I probably struggle like everybody else, but I really do try to concentrate on this. So I watch a lot of HGTV, so I think I'm an interior designer. So I love, you know, I just bought an investment property, but I redid my original house. I loved every minute of it. I gutted bathrooms. I did it inside and out. Did you do inside of three weeks. No, did but in, no, I had like, I had like, YouTube? yeah, I designed it. I had people in and out. I was working on my computer in the middle of an empty living room. And people are like, oh my gosh, that's so stressful. I'm like, I loved every minute of it. Like, I just love that whole interior design thing. So yes, I do think I'm an interior designer. Do you, do you like this, the show Grand Designs then? Is that, I have, is that, yes, just I do. Yes, I watch, I watch them all. They're all on my list. <laughs> and yes, all you Fixer Upper fans, Chip and JoJo from Waco, Texas. And so they weren't even a thing when I was doing the assessment there in 2013. So they're big HGTV fans. So I have a lot of interests. I I love Pilates. I just started in 2019 being serious about Pilates and yoga. Did you start that because of, and I, I, let me preface the, or give you the why. I 
do a bit of Pilates as well. And I started it for back, it. back pain. Yeah. And it just transformed. I just love it. I don't know. I'm not a gym goer. I can't run. But I just love it. Yeah. It's a good workout for me. Yep. Honestly, I'm frugal. I struggled with the cost of it. But I said, I pay for gym membership and then I don't go. So I guess I just wasted all that money. This So 2019 was my year of creativity. So I started taking guitar lessons. Amazing. I started taking voice lessons, so I'm very comfortable with the microphone. Like okay. <laughs> and, and you've been perfect. Um, I said, you, actually, I think you've been the most consistent guest with the mic. Yes. Yeah, so I'm a I talker. Yes, your audience can tell I'm a talker. <laughs> I took care of my mom um, the year before she crossed over, and her story and life is so magnificent. And I actually wrote a book about it. It's called The Joan Chronicles. So I guess writing is... I don't know if it's a hobby, but I guess I do like to write. And the book is incredibly inspirational. And people say, oh, my God, well, it's so sad she died. I'm like, well, spoiler alert, right? We're all going <laughs> to die. It's not about death. It's about living your life and living a blessing until you stop breathing. And people that have read it say, I laughed, I cried. I mean, it's incredibly funny. It really is. <laughs> so my mom was a jokester. So... I want to hear a bit more about your mom and I would love to hear because this is a it's a I want to say brave a courageous and and thank you for the gift because this You're is welcome. going to be the, the next thing I read. You're welcome. I get the sense it's going to be one of the most uplifting books that I also read because really we have is. so much fear of death. I yes. read I read Being Mortal by Atul Gawande and it's about you know, it's about the spoiler alert, it's coming. How do you want yeah. to do it? An upcoming guest will be BJ Miller, who does wow, the yes. Hospice Project yes. in San Francisco. So I'm flying up there next month to interview him. Yes. Um, and I got his book on, you know, how to die. Yes. Really confronting material or our own mortality. Yes. How did this come about? Where did the idea well, come from? Well, it's very from? funny. I call it the accidental book. My mom is was just beloved. So when we were at Sloan Kettering in New York and the doctor said, there's nothing else we can do. You know, I was on the phone. I, my dad and I, are, we're just on the phone constantly and hearing everybody cry. What was her diagnosis? Ovarian cancer. Ovarian cancer, yeah. okay. So hearing everybody cry and sob and it was, I felt so bad for them, but honestly, I was like, oh my gosh, it's too hard. Like I can't hear them cry. Like it was too hard. So I said, you know what? And mind you, you know, the, my parents' friends are in their seventies, so they don't have Facebook. So I said, all right, every day I'm going to just write a group email so you know what's going on. So I'd be like, okay, today her blood test said this, blah, blah, blah. And then my, something would happen and my mom and I would be laughing, crying on the floor. But meanwhile, my aunt is crying in Pennsylvania, right? Yep. And I'm thinking, oh my gosh, they're missing this. Yeah. So the next email would be like, all right, this is what happened yesterday. And it was really funny. And so I'd be typing and I'd be like, <laughs> my mom's like, what are you doing? What are you telling them? I'm like, excuse me, I'm writing an email, right? So she was like, you can't censor my stuff. So <laughs> truly what it is, Dave, what you'll see is the emails. And I fill in the places for you so you understand who the people are I'm talking about. But it's the emails. 
And these are the emails that I sent out, but what I didn't publish were all the emails and pictures and love letters my mom got back, which is, I thought, you know what? I could do like, you know, the Joan Chronicles 2.0 someday because they were hilarious as well. But my mom and I just know that we are spiritual beings. We we know there's a heaven. And so we talked about it like she was going to Pittsburgh, you know, so so she, <laughs> I like. I know you're going to be in communication. Mind you, she wants you to know she's loving this interview. She thinks your work is fabulous. So we are completely unafraid to die. And so she said, well, I don't want, like, I know that I want to give this, I want Dave to have this mug, but I don't want to just leave it for him. So I want to see him and give it to him. So she gave everybody the special thing she wanted them to have. Everybody came from all over to visit her those last several months. And it was, I mean, we just had a blast. And so when she crossed over, actually everybody was going through withdrawals. They're like, oh my gosh, we don't have any more emails, you know, from the from the Joan Chronicles. So I said, well, if nothing else, if no, and honestly, I've never marketed it. I've never done anything with it. So I just thought now it's time. I really need to get her message out because it's so incredibly special. And I'm I'm looking forward to your review. I can't wait to read it, but I know I'm going to need tissues. Yes, like even you being, will. Even being near it, yes. I can actually feel myself being a bit emotional yes. flicking through the pages of it. So I'm like, oh my yes. God, this is going to be incredible. You just said something that just lit up massive lights in my mind. And maybe you, maybe you just repeat it. And you said you're completely unafraid to die. And what I see in front of me is that I wonder if that just gives you such epic permission to live, such freedom. Yeah. You know, it didn't used to be like that. I will tell you, I fly a lot. (laughs) And if there were turbulence, I would be nauseous on the verge of vomiting. I'm like, oh my gosh, we're going to die. I mean, just a little bump. Right. And then what happened was my uncle, my precious Nana, and my mom died once a year for three years. I call it the trifecta. Yeah. And after the trifecta, I simply lost my fear of death. And you want to know something interesting? That plane can bounce all over the place and I don't get nauseous anymore. Isn't that crazy? Was there something in the process of each of those people passing or crossing over that took away that fear for you? I'm not sure what it was. I mean, certainly the way my mom handled it and talked about it and I think that helped. I think, I, I don't know, I can't explain it except that I came out on the other side incredibly, you know, people look at me like, oh my gosh, that's so sad. I look at it like I have the most amazing blessed family. We are a loving, like there's just not a bad bone amongst us. Like, and I feel so blessed. And so when I think of my mom, I laugh instead of cry because, you know, my cousins and I always say like, oh, we're so blessed with our family because Now, like we knew how to parent and we knew how to be good people because of them. And so if there's one message is that you stay solid in gratitude and there is no way to heal. There is no way to prevent suffering 
without gratitude. And if you stay in gratitude, no matter what the situation is, it is the worst of the worst could be happening. But whatever you lost, and and sometimes it's hard, right? It's a child. Stay in gratitude that that was your child, that you that will always be your child, that they will always be in your life and a blessing. And and it's hard work to stay in gratitude, but that really is the secret. Have you, uh, you know, are there any moments, any examples of from your own life? How have you said that to yourself? How have you maintained your state of gratitude? What would be, you know, an example of that? Well, just staying on the theme of my mom, instead of being so upset or sad about her passing, I always am grateful that she was my mom and how she raised me and how she supported me. Um, And my dad, too. My dad's going on 86 or 7 next month, you know, how they raised me. So I and I think about my cat, Lucas, who died very tragically I never had a pet die tragically. I always made the decision to euthanize them. And when he died tragically, this never happened to me before. You can imagine now, but I couldn't, I was stuttering. I couldn't speak. It was literally one of the most devastating things that ever happened to me. And over time, it took a couple months. But when I looked at his picture or thought of him, I thought of something funny, like, he had a thing about court. He couldn't be here right now. He would chew this microphone cord. <laughs> he would chew my sandals, a pocketbook. I still have a pocketbook with his bite marks. And I remember my mom saying, get rid of that pocketbook. Look, it's the carpet. I, I will never get rid of that pocketbook. Because <laughs> every time I go out with this little dress bag, it's like I see his bite marks. And it makes me laugh. So I think that that's, I, I just kept bringing myself back to gratitude. And I tell people that, you're going to cry your eyes out and it's going to be really hard. But eventually you need, when you focus on gratitude, the next time you think of them, you'll smile. Yeah. The clouds clear. Yes. Hmm. Profound. The work you're doing now, talk us through. And I think you started to talk about it a little bit yes. and, and maybe it's connected. I wasn't, I wasn't completely clear if it was the same thing as you're doing now, but with the team shelter yes. USA, yes. is that still part of right. that project? to get to zero. It's a whole it's a whole little road. So target zero, we did assessments until 2017. Yep. And then that organized, I left to start Team Shelter USA because I did want a broader reach. I wanted to be able to do other projects like write the book because we had this, a very narrow, we were only helping shelters with high euthanasia rates. I was being asked to speak or do other projects. So I started Team Shelter USA. It's my own consulting company. I'm a team of one, but I consider team to be, right, everybody. And the University of Florida is my biggest client, and I'm over their assessment and mentorship program. I mentioned earlier Cameron Moore, who was with Target Zero. Well, she transitioned to University of Florida. So because of our impactful work, the University of Florida wanted us to continue. So we're continuing to do our assessments together. And we are sponsored by the Million Cat Challenge. But when we do assessments, we are holistic dogs and cats. And we just awarded eight communities a pro bono assessment. So we started in uh, last week and we are booked through June doing our assessments. 
So I do all kinds of different projects. I'm a funder advisor for the Joni Bernard Foundation, and we have ended euthanasia in Northern Kentucky. I just actually got another grant for 12 counties in Kentucky. I got a $200,000 grant for them for cat spay neuter and to continue my mentorship program. And so I've been very instrumental. I'm not a funder, but I link organizations now probably over $5 million in funding because funders want to know how to strategize. Who doesn't? Yeah. I do in my own personal giving, right? We want to be impactful with every dollar. Yeah, you want to know it's not wasted and it's going to the right places. Right. So that's how the book happened. So since 2013, every other week I'm doing an assessment and I'm writing the same report because <laughs> guess what? Everywhere I go in the United States of these America, this America, everybody thinks they're different and everybody thinks they're unique and everyone has the same the challenges same, the same issues. and everybody has the same solutions. So I published the best practice playbook for animal shelters and actually Dr. Marty Becker, Fear Free Founder, helped me launch in April at the Humane Society of the United States Expo. And since April, I've sold 2,000 plus copies. I'm so excited. Phenomenal. Yes. That's amazing. I'm really so excited about it. And so we want that book in every shelter. It's at the Cornell Veterinary School Library. I'm presenting to the student chapter. All 1,200 veterinary students are going to hear my presentation at Cornell in March. I... I'm excited to read this from a private practitioner's point of view as well, because I actually think, having spoken yes. with you, I think there's going to be quite a lot of relevant stuff there as well. So so I'm excited to read that as well, and uh, I will report back. Yes, on, I need uh, reviews on, on both. Yes. <laughs> I will report back my findings. Okay, so let's wind things up. You've been really generous with your time, and so we wind up just with um, perhaps some more lighthearted stuff, perhaps not. You may take it anywhere you want, but the sort of short form or quick fire okay. round of questions. Okay, I'm ready. Have to be quick answers, okay. right? So, so you've written two books now. What would the title of your TED Talk be? Very interesting, because I am going to apply to do a TED Talk. Well, I have been thinking about that, and I haven't landed on a solution or a title yet, but it would be something about it will weave in animal welfare, but it doesn't have to be this way. Something like that, because it's going to be all about releasing our fears and then amplifying our life saving. Love. So I'll keep you posted on that, Dave. I'll all tell right. you um, when I do my TED Talk what it'll be. That's <laughs> it. That's it. All right. I'm going to hold you to that. <laughs> you mentioned being frugal earlier. That, yes. that chimes with my Scottishness. <laughs> yes. So I imagine when you spend, you spend wisely. So what's the best? investment you've made in the last sort of six to 12 months what's the thing that's brought you the most joy or has been the most useful object wise it doesn't have to be professional it can just be something cool in your life that's yeah. added value so as you know i'm an interior designer on the side and i would never pay retail so i shop a lot at thrift stores and i buy the most magnificent pieces and i have this gorgeous wicker dresser that I have on my patio that I use as a credenza when I entertain and everybody goes crazy for it and it was $35 at a thrift store. So I have many of those pieces in my home 
in both of my properties because I always find like the coolest things. Sometimes I do them over, but if you haven't shopped at thrift stores, you must. I've never paid more than $3 for a pair of jeans in the last probably 10 years because I get all my jeans at thrift stores. I think there's there's actually, <laughs> I think there's another completely separate podcast in that, like yes. thrift, thrift, store tre- yes. thrift store treasures. I like that. There's some very good sort of, we call them flea markets. Yes, love and I, it. And I, I do love trawling around those places. Yes. And my house is, is covered in cool things for not very much money. I do like that. Okay, is there a book that you've read that's been very impactful that you think is relevant, you know, that's that's helped you professionally? What has been your favorite sort of either leadership book or veterinary, veterinary book? Anything oh, to mind? gosh, there's several of them. Two come to mind is Switch by Dan and Chip Heath. Have you read? I haven't that, read. Oh, it's I know the book you mean, but I have not read it. A must read for anybody. And it's about systems change and all the ways that we think, you know, and they, those two work with major corporations. And so major corporations will, will spend millions of dollars on trying to change this one parameter. And they're like, well, why don't you do it like this as much? And then it happens immediately. Like it's the most incredible book. Switch is amazing. Tipping Point is another great book. I like reading books like that. My next one is Talking to Strangers. It's actually just out. Malcolm Gladwell. Okay. That's that's my next book. I'm going to... And Gladwell did the tipping point as well. Yes. Okay. What's the most controversial thing people don't know about you but matters? The most controversial thing about me? Yeah, that people don't know but really matters. Oh, that don't... Controversial. Or maybe because people are just meeting you for the first time. And it doesn't have to be controversial. You can replace that with coolest thing. That they don't know about me. But kind of matters. But matters, uh, well, I, I mean, I don't know how much this matters, but what most people don't know about me is that I took all the Wilton cake decorating classes and I make professional cakes, like all the flowers out of icing. And stuff. Oh. <laughs> so that matters to um, we've, sugar addicts. <laughs> we've, we've, we've got to hang out. This sounds good. I'm a big baker. Oh, yeah. No, no. We'll get along great. I'm, a, I'm, I'm basically a Labrador, so... I, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I recently posted my I'm a trained Italian chef at, <gasps> at university get out of and, here and final years at school uh, high school so I can cook and I like making I just like making banana bread on the weekends me and my daughter we have that yeah. and you know nice to have at the end of the day and so I but I also am not brilliant at following recipes <laughs> So baking more, it cooking you can get away with that baking not so much not so much not so much so i have cooked many nice banana bread loaves and this one i, I put it all in and, and i'm sort of following the recipe but i didn't have a measure and it was in u.s measurements so imperial not yeah in metric right, right. And i didn't have a cup i didn't have a cup right. i didn't have anything that would measure a cup. oh my gosh and I'm not measuring water, I'm measuring things, and I'm not sure of the density and if that, like, in mils will translate to right. milligrams. And I'm, So I decide, well, that's all too much to think about. This is why nobody ever let me near the infusion pumps for, like, ketoacidotic cats <laughs> and adding potassium to bags. Right. Like, yeah, no, don't let them do that. 
I sort of think, well, it'll be okay. I'll just eyeball the ingredient. I've got a cup in oh, my cupboard. Oh, my gosh. And it roughly looks like the size of the Hills food cups that right. I used to use. Yeah. So I'll just eyeball it. So I put these things in. I might have used one extra mushy banana as well. So yeah. anyway, it looks roughly the consistency. I tip it in the bowl. I put it in the oven. And, and it smells good. And it's puffing yeah. up. And I'm like, oh, man, this is going to be the jam. This cake is going to be so good. And I, <laughs> and I tip the thing up. And it poured out. <laughs> oh no! It has a it has a it has a thick skin. Yeah. So it flops out and it wobbles like jelly. Oh my gosh! <laughs> like and I'm like, oh, I shouldn't do that. So and then and then it just flattens. Everything flattens. Oh And gosh. it flattens out. So I now have like banana <laughs> jello cake. <laughs> and it is the worst thing in the whole oh world. Oh my ever. gosh! So, so yeah, I I probably wouldn't cook for you but I'll, all of the icing you want to make I would definitely <laughs> I'd say I think you already told me what the worst piece of advice you would have ever been given is is the person telling you not to be a vet that was a good one yeah or just I mean the worst piece of advice well this is also interesting is since 2013 I've been a full-time consultant and in 2006, I met with some very high-level national leaders, and I said, what do you think about me doing a consulting business? And they're like, no, you'll never make a business. You know, shelters won't pay for it. <laughs> so I didn't. I actually didn't do it at the time. So yeah, that wasn't good advice. But in all fairness, there's I don't think there's much of what, you know, what I do. There's just very few people doing assessments, and I'm not, there's only one other veterinarian that does assessments, but... I think I'm pretty unique in my approach and the holistic approach. Completeness. Yeah. I would say. What's the best piece of advice you've ever been given? The best piece of advice I've ever been given, I mean, just probably would be from my parents that you just try it. I mean, try it. It doesn't work out. You try something else. What's the worst? So, yeah. If you could jump in a time machine and, you know, Zip out Cornell graduation day from veterinary school. Right. And just have a little word in your ear back then. Would you give yourself yeah. some advice? And if so, what would it be? Oh, that's interesting. Um, just pay attention to every step because every step in my career has led me to be effective in what I'm doing now. And I will tell you that the six years in Miami were six of the hardest years of my life. It was incredibly difficult. There was a lot of people, I shouldn't say a lot of people. There were some crazy people against me. There was some staff against me. And so it was incredibly difficult. But now when I look back, I think, well, thank goodness, because right, I can, that has really brought down barriers between public shelter directors who have never allowed an assessment to be done but when I say I got, I understand because I was attacked you, too. You've got that empathy. So, right. Now, are you in the, the social media domain at all? Do you have a particular, well, a, a weapon of choice yeah, in that so regard? Yeah, there's, so there's this new thing I heard about. It's called the Facebook. And I just started a Facebook page in April <laughs> because <laughs> of the like book. 2020. I was forced into it, I have to say. But I am trying so I so far have about 500 followers yep. and, you know, I think it's going to get bigger and better. I'm going to be developing that. But literally that is the, my first, Your first toe, foray. I, the first foray. 
And honestly, just because, you know what, in Miami, I was so attacked so much. I just didn't feel like yeah, dealing I, with it. Right, right Honestly, right. I'm doing so much positive work. I don't want to, anything to distract me. And But because of the book, I really want this message amplified. And I can't be in every shelter every day. And that's what I, so I, I thought it would help the book. And I am on LinkedIn. Thank you very much. And I think I've posted once in the last two years. All right. So let's imagine you can post on LinkedIn or Facebook and it right. can hit up every, it can either be every person on the planet or every veterinarian on the planet yeah. or veterinary professional. Uh, what message would you post? So with respect to animal welfare, I would say we need to look at this system a different way and there's a much better way so that less animals suffer and less people suffer because we're all connected. And I would give a five-minute presentation about the things that can be done differently and to just encourage people to open their minds and think a little bit differently. And again, we all trigger to negative. So I often have to catch myself too, thinking about, oh, I can't do that because I'm like, whoa, wait, wait, that's not the whole story. I'm, that's the story I'm telling myself, right? But... So that would be my message. And if you had to distill that down into a sentence or any sentence, what would the sentence be? It's a tweet now. You've only got 140 Okay, characters. well, if I'm going to tweet like the whole world, I would think about it longer. But off the top of my head, I'll say there's nothing more important than communicating and listening and respecting what the other person is not only saying but feeling. And when we do that, we can get light years ahead of where we are. All right. So if people want to buy a copy of either the best practice playbook for animal shelters or the Joan Chronicles that are out, they can do so on Amazon, yes. I'm assuming. Yes. Both books available yes. there. Um, strongly recommend that, that you guys do that. If they want to reach out to you, you know, uh, they can. It's at Team Shelter USA on Facebook. Is that correct? Right. Well, it's Team Shelter US. Like, if you're including me or tagging me, it's at. But it's Team Shelter USA. Yep. Same website. Dot yep. com. And is there you prefer people to get in touch with you via website via Facebook if they want to have an assessment done or anything like that? Yeah, either. Or, or you guys just show Dr. Sarah some love uh, for what has been an amazing interview. You know, hit you up either those places or is there an email they can yes, get you? Yes, it's Dr. Pisano, P-I-Z-A-N-O at Team Shelter USA. And I want to mention too, the playbook really is for a broad audience. So it's for shelters and municipal leaders, veterinarians, funders, general animal lovers, rescue groups. And it's about the whole process when animals do enter the shelter, what we should be doing and thinking about so we can provide them a fear-free environment and get them out the door to the shortest length of stay, out the door to the best opportunity and placement for them. Amazing. Sarah, thank you so much for your time. Such uh, generous, so generous with your time, but also so generous with your storytelling and knowledge. I'm enlightened. I'm amazed. I'm inspired. I hope thank everyone you. listening is as well. So thank you for the work that you do and keep on rocking. Thank you so much for this opportunity. I really appreciate it, Dave. Thank you. Thank you. 
So that is a wrap for another episode of Blunt Dissection. Thank you so much to our wonderful guests today. Please show them some love on the socials. You can help out enormously to keep supporting the show by doing three things. Number one, go and listen to another episode. There are 39 back episodes you can binge listen on, and I know lots of you do. Number two, jump on iTunes or whatever your favorite podcast platform is, and please leave me a review. And number three, Shout something out on social media, an Instagram post, a Facebook post. Tell your friends about Blunt Dissection Podcast. Until the next episode, from me, Dr. Dave Nichol, be safe, be well, and be happy.